0: You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. As you're standing, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you're able... Feel free to sit if you need to, but Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, we're going to move around a bit in the new Testament this morning, but this will be our, our launching pad. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then, verse 20, he strictly charged them, charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, last week, if you were here, we looked... To the purest history of the church in Acts chapter 2. We looked at the purest history of the church in Acts chapter 2 in order to reacquaint ourselves with what it meant to be together as God's people. And what we saw in Acts chapter 2 was a church devoted. They were devoted to each other. They were devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to the fellowship of the saints. They were devoted to the Lord's table and they were devoted to prayer. This is the so-called four marks of the church, God's word, God's people, God's table and prayer. These were people gathered together who had been cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had convinced them that they were guilty of high treason They were guilty of sin against a holy God and that there was nothing they could do to pardon their guilt. They were cut to the heart. But these are also people who freely receive the forgiveness of their sins through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they were a people in awe of God. In awe of God. And their awe of God because of their The the generosity of God toward them led to generosity toward others. They gave as anybody had need. They were in awe of God's grace, and so they gave and they served. In short, the church in Acts chapter 2 were devoted to Christ, and they were devoted to each other. These are two essential characteristics of the church. A people devoted to Christ and devoted to each other. In the New Testament, you've heard me say this before, and I'm quoting somebody else, but to be a part of the church in the New Testament meant to be a part of a church. To be a part of the church meant to be a part of a church, and and therefore to be devoted to Christ was to be devoted to a people, a gathered people, an ordinary people, a sniffling, sneezy, awkward people, They were devoted to Christ and they were devoted to each other. So, this week and next, I want to go deeper into those two characteristics of the church. What it looks like, boots on the ground, to be devoted to Christ this week, and next week, what it means to be devoted to each other. My aim, my hope, is to get practical. We're going to be theological, we're going to be biblical. But my aim is to be practical. What does it look like for the Christian to be devoted to Christ? And what does it look like for the Christian to be devoted to one another? So this week, devoted to Christ. Next week, devoted to one another. We are living, this is not going to sound remarkable, but we are living in a critical time in history And therefore, we are living in a critical time in church history. It's been said that about every 500 years, the church goes through a great purge, a reformation of sorts, where the church sort of has a yard sale. And we put out to sale all of these things that we've been unnecessarily collecting over the centuries. And we sort of purge. We do a A spring cleaning every 500 years. And I think this is mostly true. If you look through the trajectory of the church, every 500 years, there is this sort of great purging, this great yard sale that happens. Almost exactly 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation was sparked by a few Catholic monks who were protesting the church's marriage to power in politics. And as a result, the church, because of their unlawful marriage to power and politics, the church was teaching all kinds of doctrines that were not in concert with Holy Scripture. And so the great Protestant Reformation was a movement in the church to reform the church around the Scriptures as the final authority for both the confession and the conduct of the church. It was an attempt to reform, to purge, to do away with things that we had collected over the years that were not biblical. Well, fast forward 500 years later to today. The rise of individualism, similar to the Renaissance era 500 years ago, but has now today been accelerated through technology and curated ecosystems, has many again today, like 500 years ago, questioning institutions and authority. Who has the right to tell me what I am to believe and how I am to conduct my life? Who, who has the right to tell me what I am to confess about ultimate things? The same was happening 500 years ago. If you track the, the Renaissance, there was this move of individualism. You see the art begin to change, the music begin to change. But unlike the Reformation 500 years ago, listen, unlike the Reformation 500 years ago, today's Reformation in the church, as far as I can see, and in most places, is not placing Scripture as the final authority through which we discern what to keep and what to put out into the yard sale. But instead, today, the individual is at the center of authority. But it's individualism with a dangerous twist. It's individualism that is moving at a speed that is unprecedented, again, because of technology. But it's individualism with a dangerous twist. It's individualism that doesn't particularly care about truth, but instead self-preservation. How do I self preserve or how do I advance? It's not so much about truth, it's about self preservation. And when individuals are more concerned about self preservation than the integrity of truth, then tribalism is born. Let me explain. When truth is not the thing that we rally around and are reformed by, then we will move to more pragmatic associations like political parties and interest groups to rally around and be reformed by. We have and will continue to have an insatiable need to be with a people. We have to be with a group. And when truth is not the thing that we rally around or are reformed by, we'll move to lesser associations, more pragmatic associations that help us to self-preserve or to advance our cause. We will simply look to beat the other, even if it comes at the expense of integrity, character, and truth. Now, this, I believe, is the cultural waters that we are all swimming in. Individualism that has met militant tribalism. And the question is, and and, and here's the, the problem, it's not just out there. Individualism and militant tribalism has seeped into the church, where the church is wondering, what is our confession Who are our people? What's the wagon that we hitch ourselves to in this post-truth, hyper-individualistic era? Where do we go as God's people? This is a culture disinterested in truth and more interested in self-preservation. What is a church to do in a post-truth context? In short, we are called to preach Christ. Let's close in prayer. That's it. No, I'm just kidding. We are called to preach Christ, but listen, not as we see him. We do not preach Christ as we see him. We preach Christ as scripture reveals him. Every world ideology and agenda wants to preach Christ or claims to have some sort of angle on Christ, but it's Christ as they see him. It's Christ through the lens of individualism. It's Christ through the lens of politics. It's Christ through the lens of tribalism. But God's people, we know better, don't we? We do not preach Christ as we see him. We preach Christ as scripture reveals him. And this is the anchor that I want us to tie off to in this body. That this would be a faithful church, devoted to Christ. And in order to be devoted to Christ, we must be devoted to his word. We must not stand over his word, in authority over his word, but stand under his word, under authority. That's how we will be faithful to Christ. Jesus Christ is the central jewel in the crown of truth. He is the central jewel in the crown of truth. Everything hinges on who He is and what He accomplished. That means that Jesus is not a means to another end. We don't follow Jesus for pragmatic reasons. He's not a means to another end, He is the end. Jesus is not the means to another victory. He is the victory. He is the telos. He is the greatest aim in all the universe. He is the goal of our worship. He is not a supplement. He is a replacement. Jesus said of himself, and Pastor Hans prayed it this morning. He is, Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the articles. Who talks like that? This is either supreme arrogance or worthy of complete devotion. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And the church, us, God's people, gathered together in a local expression, the church is the one entity In all the universe, that has been given the divine power through the Holy Spirit and the divine privilege on the authority of Scripture to reveal who Jesus is to the world. And we must not outsource this privilege to any other. This is our divine privilege. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. When's the last time you felt like you were guarding the gospel? And I'm not talking, you guys know me, I'm not talking about on Facebook. Nobody, I don't know, maybe there are good, I'm sure there are good intentions But there's very little guarding going on on Facebook. There's a lot of insecurity. But when's the last time you guarded that good deposit in your own heart and in conversation? That good deposit about Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. Paul says to a young pastor named Timothy, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul doesn't say, does he? get creative with the gospel. Sort of, the church is like a think tank. We kind of just, we get creative. It's like a lab. We kind of pull it apart and we, we put a little you know fog machine behind it and we make it look pretty and we make it look engaging. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say get creative with the gospel. He doesn't say dress it up. He doesn't say melt it down into political agendas. Paul says guard it. Guard it. I take that to mean that Jesus is not for hire. He is the Lord of glory. So, how do we guard the integrity of the gospel? I want to get practical. How do we guard the integrity of the gospel? How do we maintain devotion to Christ in a post-truth world that is moving faster than any of us can imagine? How do we do that? Three ways, I think. First in our confession regarding who Jesus is. First in the words we use, the actual language we use about Himself, about Christ. First in our confession. Second in our conduct, how we behave in life. I don't have just in mind our our actions, but also our our posture of heart, our the tone of our lives. What is the tone of our lives marked by our conduct? Are we, are we, is the aroma of Christ as Paul spoke, is that coming out of our lives? So it's in our confession and in our conduct. But third, we guard the good deposit by keeping at the center of our remembrance and affections, Christ's devotion to us. Our confession our conduct, and then our remembrance of Jesus' devotion to us. So let me move through these three in our time together. First, our confession. We remain devoted to Christ through our confession. Now look at our text again in Matthew chapter 16. This is a critical time in the church, in the development of the disciples and the church in Matthew's gospel. Verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say Against it. What a glorious scene. Notice this is the first time in Matthew's gospel where the word church is used. The word church is actually two Greek words that have been smashed together. The word is ekklesia. Ek meaning out and klesia meaning called. Kaleo. So the church are those who are called out. At a most fundamental definition, the church are those who are called out. Peter in his first epistle says that the church are those who are gathered together who have been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We are ek kaleo, We are the people called out. and this is the first time in Matthew's gospel the word church is used but notice with me that Jesus just got done asking his disciples hey who do other people say that the son of man is what's the word on the street concerning my identity what do those in other words what do those outside of this community say about me well Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Maybe Jeremiah. Maybe today in our age, they would say he's a a good moral teacher, right? He's the the one that spoke the golden rule, right? Like Jesus is next to Gandhi and and Muhammad and, and kind of these, he's a global leader. What do others say that the son of man is? But then Jesus moves from the outside to the inside to the church what about this group who do you say that i am jesus is making a distinction isn't he between his people and not his people and he is making this distinction through what his people confess about him versus what others confess about him. And his people get it right. Peter stands up as the spokesman to the apostles or of the apostles. And he says, you are the Christ. That's an Old Testament. That, that, that title is loaded with Old Testament messianic promise. You are the anointed one of Israel. You are the one we have been longing for. You are the one who will take away our sins forever. You are the Christ. Not only that, you are the son of the living God. That's who you are, Jesus. The disciples get it right but not because they are smarter than other people. This is really key, particularly in a post-truth context. Because we're in a post-truth context, any sort of declaration just feels offensive. Any sort of truth claim just makes you seem like you're the guru and you're, the, you're just the condescending person. But two things go together when we confess Christ. Notice that Peter doesn't say, well, you're kind of sort of the Christ and you're kind of sort of the, the, the son of the living God and maybe kind of, maybe kind of. He doesn't. He declares with perfect clarity that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But notice what Jesus says to him. He says, good job, Peter, you're right. But flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. So in a post-truth context, the church must be clear about who Jesus is, but also very humble in our articulation because it did not originate with us. When we profess Christ as he truly is, we are saying it as divinely inspired, divinely revealed. It's not because we were the smart kids in the class that figured out the, the redemptive equation and the rest of the world are idiots, Jesus is quick to say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, beloved, we do not need to choose between humility and clarity. We don't have to choose. We don't have to apologize for our confession. But at the same time, we don't need to be proud. We must not be proud. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to us. We are those who have received this revelation. And so we don't need to choose between humility and clarity. So in its very basic form, the church is a group of people who have been called out at by God and given through divine revelation the exclusive rights to reveal who Jesus is to the world. This is the church. This is what the church does. Let's keep going. Look at verse 19 and 20. And Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In this text, Jesus is revealing for us an essential function of the church. Keys, as you know, are a symbol of access or authority, right? If if, if I have the key to this door and nobody else has the key to this door, I have a function, a, a kind of way to, to grant access or to forget this place. Nobody's got a key here, but to your own home, you've got the keys to your own home. So you can grant access to those that you want to grant access to and to keep others outside that you don't want. And so Jesus says something remarkable to the disciples. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'm giving you a kind of authority In the right in the middle of his teaching on on the church, Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples, I will gift you the keys to the kingdom of of heaven. Now, the church is not the kingdom, but according to Christ, the church has been given authority to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which grants access to the kingdom of God. So we can grant access, but what if somebody comes along and says, I'm a Christian. I want a fellowship here. I I want access to the church. And we say, okay, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? Oh, well, he's a a moral teacher. He's like Gandhi. Well, certainly we would welcome them into the fellowship to receive the preached word, but we would not extend fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ because the confession of Christ needs to be such that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So here's an analogy that, that we've used here from the pulpit and we've stole from Jonathan Lehman, but the church functions Is kind of like an embassy on foreign soil. So an embassy, a U.S. embassy, if you and I go to travel to Europe, say we go to Germany to to travel, and we're coming back now as U.S. citizens, we're coming back to America, we stop at the U.S. embassy. Now the U.S. embassy will not make us citizens of the U.S., but they will, what? Check our credentials. They'll ask us some pretty fundamental questions about the United States. Where do you live? What's your family like? What do you do? And then when we provide those credentials to the embassy, they stamp the, tra- the passport and we are on our way. You know, in a similar way, the church functions as this entity that checks the passport. Who is Christ? Who is he? Oh, he is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's my savior. Oh, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to the family of God. Peter doesn't get to pick who his favorites are. We don't get to pick who our favorites are But who comes in. As another writes, it's on the basis of Peter's confession and not his personal abilities that Peter was given the keys. So in short, the church in and of itself cannot save people. The church cannot keep people saved. People are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's the church that has been given this unique privilege to confess Christ to the watching world, and to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. So that's number one. We remain devoted to Christ in a post-truth world by remaining faithful to our confession about him. Second, we remain devoted and faithful to Christ in a post-truth world by the way we conduct our lives, by the way we live. If it's merely a confession, we can very easily unpreach our sermons by the life that we live. And so Paul wrote in First Thessalonians chapter one, verses four and five. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Then Paul says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So we remain devoted to Christ, not only in our confession, but also in our conduct in the world. Spurgeon used to say, my true sermon begins when I step down from the pulpit. And what he's saying is, people are watching my life. They're watching to see if what I profess about Christ is effective in my own life. Paul write, wrote again to young Timothy in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching and persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How do we remain faithful to Christ in a post-truth culture? We confess him as he's revealed in scripture and we obey all that he has commanded us to obey. Well, you might say that is a tall order. (laughs) Obey. All that he has commanded us to obey. Do you realize what you're asking me to do? This is a very tall order to which my only reply is, yes, it is. And too tall for any of us. That's why when Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Very simply. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the father And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So it is too high of a task to be obedient in our conduct in this world, but we are not called to do this alone. We have been given the helper, the Holy Spirit, the second, third member of the Trinity. Not only that, but we'll talk about next week and how the Lord has given us each other to walk out this life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. But here God the Holy Spirit is with the Christian, guiding us into faithfulness, encouraging us, and yes, convicting us of sin when we've fallen short. And when we fall short, not if, when we fall short to faithfulness to Christ, we remember again our confession that he is the one who has forgiven us of our sins. And we're at once moved with joy because we're not condemned and again Humility floods our hearts because we deserved none of it. So church, we tie off to the anchor of Jesus Christ in a post-truth world. First in our confession, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we don't become boastful in our confession because flesh and blood has not revealed this to us. But our father who is in heaven. And we tie off our, uh, to the anchor of Christ in a post-truth world in our conduct, in the way we obey Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the key to all of our devotion to Christ is to keep at the very core of our remembrance and the very core of our affection, Christ's devotion to us. If you begin this new year and you're just resolved to be devoted to Christ, your confession, your conduct, you're resolved to be sanctified, you're resolved to read your Bible and pray every day, you're resolved not to miss a Sunday, you're resolved to be devoted, but you neglect to remember Christ's devotion to you, brothers and sisters, we won't make it past February in our resolutions burning at the center of our being has to be this stubborn remembrance of God's devotion to us through Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter five as we close and I just want to gaze at Christ's devotion to us. Romans chapter five. beginning in verse six. I feel like I'm like way ahead of time. So we might do a little bit more in Romans. But start at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. Listen to God's devotion. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to remain devoted to Christ in our confession, in our conduct, we must keep at the center of our remembrance and affections God's devotion to us. Now flip just to the right to Romans chapter eight and listen to just some of the effects of Christ's devotion to his church. And I pray that this puts joy in your heart, steel in your spine, resolve in your life. Romans chapter eight, verse 31. So what then shall we say to these things? What do we say to God's devotion to us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. At the center, burning at the center of our devotion to Christ is his devotion to us. In this culture, I'm with you. I feel like I'm getting swirled around by how quickly things are moving and how quickly things are changing and how quickly the church is calling for reform and change. May we be a people tied off to the anchor of Christ, a confession revealed not by flesh and blood, but through the word and the spirit. May we be devoted to our conduct in the world, both in our actions and in the posture of our heart. And may we, as a church, be devoted to Christ as we remember his resolving, resolved, undying devotion to us.